Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. I'm here today with um, the luminary of the moment. I'm so excited to have him here, Sam Wong, who is not only the most brilliant electoral prognosticator, because as of today, he's number one. Um, he got everything right. Um, but he's also the author of the books Welcome to Your Child's Brain and Welcome to Your Brain both of which are popular popular expositions of neuroscience, and that's what he does for a living. And actually, you know, I'm a neuroscience freak, so I haven't read those books yet, but I'm going to. And you should actually buy those books. And you also, also should go to his website, the Princeton um, Consortium. I'm sorry, it's election.princeton.edu is the, um, is the, email order, is the um, URL. No, thanks for having me on. This is wonderful. Oh, no, it's great. Um, Sam, I'd love to talk to you to start with. I think about the methodology that you've that you've worked through. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm being stupid. Sam's one of the people who has been working through um, projections slash aggregation of, of of nationwide, statewide, mostly state polls to make predictions about what's going to happen in the electoral call in in the presidential election or all the other elections. Um, he's you know, you may be more familiar with Nate Silver at 538 because he's got that big platform at New York Times, but but Sam comes from exactly the same school and actually was more right than than Nate was this time around, so that's nice. Well, thanks. That's very nice. It uh, depends a little bit on how you score it, but I, uh, yes, in presidential and Senate races, uh, uh, I gave Nate at least as good as he gave, so, uh, so I'm pretty happy with how it went. But the point that it's pretty much hard to tell is part of the point of empiricism and analysis, right? Well, I think what, one thing about this is that I've been doing this kind of uh, poll aggregation, looking at all the state polls that we can get one's hands on since 2004. And the time when this becomes really useful is when you have a pretty close race, like we did in Kerry versus Bush in 2004, and this year with, uh, with Obama versus Romney. And I think in those close races, you can't just look at a national poll and you can't just look at one or two polls. In order to really see a sharp picture of what's going on, you have to have a tool to look at all of them at once. And that's really what I've been offering since, uh, as I said, since I started doing this eight years ago. Well, but what you do is you take every single state poll, right? That's right, right. So there are publicly available polls. These are all on a feed that is very generously provided by uh, the Huffington Post at pollster.com. And Mark Blumenthal and his guys uh, put up a feed. They put up these beautiful graphs that you can play with, and they also uh, have a data feed to allow the whole thing to be automated, which we took. And those numbers just come over the transom, and uh, and they come pouring in. Uh, so at any given moment in, in Ohio, uh, which was a, obviously a hot state since it was uh, the most critical state this year, there at any given moment were multiple recent polls, and that allowed the use of good statistics to take the noise out and to see exactly where the race really was at any at any given moment. So you're saying that it's an XML feed, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's a feed that's called XML, which means that if you know a little bit about that kind of thing, you can actually automate it and have it feed into your software. So in fact, here at election.princeton.edu, my co-founder, Andrew Ferguson, and I uh, took that. Andrew wrote some scripts in this language called Python, and, uh, and he parsed the data and put it into another program that I wrote in my favorite language, MATLAB, which I use in my laboratory and took all that and reduced it to a, a sharp snapshot. Uh, people could, you know, honestly, a lot of this could be done with Excel. I mean, it's not like it's rocket science. And so you can use different kinds of programs to do it. And I, since I'm a lab scientist, I use tools that are available to me, and Andrew is a computer scientist. And so the things that we had at hand were the languages I just said. 
In Python and MathLab, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, one could do it with a hand calculator. I, honestly, when I started well, doing it's this, not it's, not much, it's not that much data. That's right. It's a, it's a finite amount of data. So at any given moment, if honestly, uh, when I'm in a hurry and I'm just trying to understand what's happening during the race, uh, I would just go to uh, pollster.com and I would just go down the list and I'd say, hmm, let's see, what's the last week of polls? My goodness, there are five polls from Ohio. And I would take those five polls and say, okay, Obama's up by five, by three, by one. Here's a tie. And uh, here's another one with Obama up by two. And I would take those and I'd take the median, the middle value of the five. And it turns out the median value, it, as opposed to an average, so you don't even have to do any addition or division. You just well, line, you just well, line up the well, yeah. median, yeah, average. Because I think you know, because when we grew up and we were taught, you know, about that bell curve thing, we were taught yes. the median, the mode, and the mean, where the mean is, and, and in the normal distribution, they're all the right, same, right, right. Yeah. So for for a bell shaped curve, those are all the same. Uh, for polling data, it's not quite the same because individual pollsters can and do have little biases. And there's, that's a little bit of an analysis problem because you have to know what to do with a polling organization that maybe has judgment that's a little bit off from the others. So, so pollsters as a population are professionals and their judgment as a crowd is very wise. But any individual pollster might be a little bit off. And so the challenge statistically is what do you do with a bunch of pollsters where some of them might be a little bit off? And that's where it's important to take the median instead of the average. But the thing I like about that is that actually it requires less arithmetic. It turns out that when I was in school, I, I was really good at higher math, like calculus and multiplication and division and, and trigonometry. And I was actually terrible at addition and subtraction. Well, that's pretty much a tradition among mathematicians. <laughs> yeah. So, and so if you just take your polling values and line them up you know, on a piece of paper and just sort them in order and say, okay, here's the one that's in the middle. Just get out a ruler and find the, the middle yeah. point? Yeah, more or less. It's, it's, really, I mean, it's really remarkably simple. And there's more statistics to say, okay, if things are too far out, then you have to convert that to a win probability. So there's a little bit more than one has to do. Uh, but the fundamental thing, if you just want to know, if you were at any point during this race wondering who was ahead and who was not ahead, um, you could just do what I just said for all the key states and uh, add up the electoral votes and see where things are at. It really is, uh, and you know, that's the simplest version. And then there are more complicated versions that we do at, at election.princeton.edu. Um, so you're saying the simplest thing to do is just take the median projection for the last T minus what? Yeah, our rule was last three polls or last seven days, which ever gave us more polls. The logic being that late in the campaign, there are so many polls that, in fact, there are often more than three in a week. I mean, if you look, at, during the last week, there were something like six or seven polls in Ohio. It was really overwhelming, uh, which is good because, in fact, as I said, the wisdom of crowds of pollsters is quite good. And when we could get a really sharp read on who was ahead of each state. Now, the wisdom of the crowds is a, is a nice thing to say because it actually ties back to the use of the median as well. So if you're just saying we, we, can, we can essentially crowdsource pollsters, that's exactly right. So that's that's exactly right. I mean, they, they have they're professionals. They have uh, on average high standards. Uh, a few of them uh, use methods that the others don't necessarily agree with. But the nice thing here is that I didn't have to do any of that. So the whole thing was curated by Mark Blumenthal, who's a professional, former professional pollster, and he's got a database of, as far as I can tell, every publicly available poll. And you just tap into that. You just you know dip your cup in and get some water out. And uh, and the data are there for the taking. It was really it's really remarkable of them, and I think it's not. I think it's appreciated by hobbyists that they provide that. But I, I think that maybe it's uh, it's not 
fully appreciated uh, what a great thing they did by making that data available. Well, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about how open source is so important to this and how it changes everything in terms of insider outsiderness. But you're talking about again about Huffington Post, right, Mark Blumenthal? That's right. And, and so they. I, I want to make sure we credit them because they they had this data available for anybody. Anybody who wanted to hook onto that pipe, they're hooking onto that pipe, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And then all the all the code that we used, which included not just calculating medians but converting those to probabilities, and distributions of what the most likely number of electoral votes and so on. Everything that we do at election.princeton.edu is also open source. And so you can go down the left column of my website and go down to say, you know, there's something for it says for fellow geeks and you click on it and it's just reams of information and we just hand it all out. Well, actually, you just made in the last week or so a correction to a projection. Um, a reader pointed out you made some, he thought you made a mistake or at least didn't have a wrinkle you should have had in place. And you, oh, yes. Well, I do make mistakes. Do you remember which mistake it was? I can't remember. It was he, he wanted to change something to uh, an exponential of 0.25 rather than 0.50. I, I can't remember the detail, but the point is is that you know he, you said, oh, you're right. I should look at that. Within the space of three or four hours, you've looked at it and said, oh, yeah. yeah, you were right, and posted the change in the code that you incorporated into the MathLab tab. Yeah, one thing that one thing that arose organically through the course of the campaign was that we had comment threads in which we attracted, for some reason, really pretty smart commenters, whether they knew math or not, they were able to really uh, comment pretty intelligently and give me lots of feedback. And so they would get really interested in the details. They'd say, how could you possibly give Heidi Heitkamp a 90% chance of winning? And then I went back and I looked at it and I redid the numbers and I said, yeah, you know, you're right, it's actually 75%. And then there's another barrage of comments, no way, she's not going to win. And I said, well, I'm sorry, it's 75% for Heitkamp. And it turned out that I was right. Um, but it was interesting well, watching no, Wait, wait, wait. That's a really important thing you just said, and I want to talk about that. You were right in that when you made the revised estimate of the, just from, just let me get weird for a moment, Bayesian estimate of 75%, you were yeah. right to provide that estimate. Yeah, let's put it this way. So when I say right, I'm being very loose. So yeah, that's so, right. that's so right. there's two there's two kinds of things that we do. One kind of thing we do is we calculate each state's probability, and since many states are not totally certain, either at the presidential or Senate level, we take those uncertain events and put them all together to calculate the shape of the whole distribution of possibilities, right? And then we can get more certainty out of all those individual uncertainties. So that's one thing we do. But the thing I was just talking about was something a little bit looser, which is I was just saying that uh, that I estimated that her chances were better than 50% that she was going to win that race. And you were right in the sense that she was a three-to-one favorite. That's right. So what I mean is that my probability was above 50% and she won. And And one can drill down and get a little bit more quantitative about how one scores a probability because, you know, a probability is is it's is not a certainty. I, I think what you're getting at is uh, if I say that a win probability is 75%, what I mean is that one out of four times the other person's going to win. Right. Right. And so that's, I think you're right. I think that's an important point that these things are often not certain. And we, for, as a parlor trick, we, you know, we, at our site and at other sites, we turn it into saying Obama's going to win Virginia and so on. And we, we make all these calls and that's the thing that people want. But if you look behind the curtain, uh, the thing that's going on is lots of these probabilities flying around because we may be certain that Obama's going to win Vermont, 
but we are not nearly so certain that he's going to win Iowa. Right, and that's expressed by percent of certainty. That's uh, right. That's and, right. And, and that's this idea, this this idea that Bayes, Bayesian people have versus classical statisticians have, is that probabilities can be. There's a difficulty in predicting probabilities of individual events. That is true. So, so functionally, when I define probability, it's something like if I tell you, oh, let's just say, for instance, I tell you uh, 20 probabilities and each of them is, is 95% in the Spazian sense, then one of them is going to come out differently. And if I define probability intelligently and correctly, then in, say, 20 state races or, or whatever the events are, you know, rainfall in, in Nebraska, uh, then one out of 20 times it's not going to work out the way I said it might. Right, because there's stuff you can't control and can't measure. The thing is, is that that's not happening. What do you mean? I mean, you guys are getting everything right. Yeah, I've been wondering about that. One thing, if you look at Nate Silver's site, um, he writes such entertaining commentary, and he he gets the sign of things right. But if you look at his probabilities, they're really cautious. He says, oh, I don't know, whatever it might be. Um, when, when you said the sign of things, you meant which guy was projected to win. That's right. He, he's very good at saying who's ahead, but if you, uh, if you add up his probabilities, it looks like he's claiming with his probabilities that, that he should be getting, say, three or four things wrong, and he's not. Now, you might think that's overperforming, but the, but the really precise math guy in me says it would be better to define the probability to express exactly how certain you really are. Well, that's one of the things that's amazing about what you were doing, because in the last two weeks, you were saying it's 99. You know, in your best projection, the Bayesian version of the projection, you were saying it's 99%. This is over. I was quite confident about that because based on past races, there's, a certain, there's only a certain amount that opinion seems to be able to move in a re-election race. And even though a two-and-a-half-point lead, which is equivalently what President Obama had uh, measured through the Electoral College, um, Oh, that's an actually. Can we can we hold right there? Oh, we can. We can definitely. People, no, people really. This is something that confuses people. Yeah, let, let me just uh, right. Let me just finish that, and then we'll okay. Uh, we'll come back. Yeah. So uh, even though the lead was not that broad, he ended up winning. Uh, let's let's come back to that. But let's say he won the popular vote by about two and a half points. That doesn't sound like much, but as it turns out in re-election races, that difference only moves slowly. And in the waning weeks of the campaign, it was very unlikely that it was going to move enough to cost him the race. And I was expressing that as a probability. And as it turns out, with a few days left in the campaign, it would have been really unlikely for that, that number to move enough to cost Obama the election. But I've never thought of this before, but we've got a real problem in that use, we use, or whoever uses, the same words, 95% probability, yeah. 50 one percent margin use the same percent things to mean something very different yes in fact actually i many of my readers uh who are new to what i do uh really balked when i would throw around probabilities like 90 percent 95 percent and I, I remember back in august i was saying that obama's re-election probability was something like 90 percent can, can we pull back because i really want to make that distinction clear sure when, when you say in a given state that it's 51 49 with a 98 percent chance of obama right. winning you're saying something about the expected value of the um race right and you're you're 90 number is talking about the fact that this is actually a real difference. That's right. That, that's right. There's a difference between the margin between the candidates. So let's pick a good example. Uh, a good example would be something like, say, oh, um, 
let's say, uh, New Jersey, where the margin between the two candidates was something like 15 percentage points in, measured in votes, right? So it would be something like whatever that is, uh, 57 to 42 between Obama and Romney. So that's a 15 Hey, you just, you just yeah, I think it's a track in your head and you get it right. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> but you saw that I struggled there. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, but it's a 15% difference between the candidates. But yet we can be quite certain that virtually nothing is going to change the fact that Obama is going to win New Jersey, and he did, obviously. Uh, even a hurricane, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just, it, it, it's such a robust thing that the probability is close to 100%. And so the probability and the margin are different things. So to give my favorite example of this year's race, um, the New North Dakota Senate race, which is, uh, you have to be a real aficionado to, to care about that, but it's... Well, well, John, John Stewart cared last night, so... Oh, did he? Yeah, no, oh. he had Nate Silver on last night, and he said, you blew North Dakota, Nate. Oh, he said that. Oh, that's interesting, huh? Well, I should have, uh, I, I will pop up now and say I did not blow it. But anyway... I, I know that, yes. No, yeah, so anyway, but the point is that the, um, that the margin between those two candidates was really tiny. It was whatever it ended up being. It's a, tiny, it's a tiny state to begin with. That's right. Although, actually, I, I'm under the general impression that small states are easier to poll than large states, uh, simply on the grounds that um, that it's... Um, uh, more homogeneous? It's more homogeneous. I mean, by definition, any one state of the union is going to be less diverse than the whole nation. And if you think about the challenges that Gallup or PPP or whoever has in surveying the entire country, that's a hard problem. But if you're just surveying Ohio, if you're just surveying North Dakota, then you've got a really finite group of people, you have a pretty clear idea of the demographics, and something like you whatever. You have a good idea of the county by county or even by precinct demographics. Yeah, and if you and if you play your cards right, if you're good at your craft, as, as, as I said, these pollsters are, uh, 700 good phone calls or whatever it might be uh, would in fact do a pretty good job of sampling. So one general observation I'll make is that what that means is that state polls are in fact on average more accurate than national polls. And so this year we saw things like Gallup and Rasmussen uh, kind of lay an egg, uh, not necessarily through their own fault, but just because it's a pretty challenging problem to guess turnout and so on, uh, to estimate turnout. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, state well, why, level isn't, why isn't that just as much a problem at the state level? Well, I think it's because of this thing that we're talking about with homogeneity, because if you look, um, it is possible to even estimate things like national popular vote based on state polls. And if you use state polls, you get a better estimate <laughs> than if you, right? So if, if you looked at no, the I national poll, I buy that. I buy like, CBS calling of 1,200 people is going to be a lot worse than, you know, every single small state, you know, Quinnipiac calling Connecticut and you know, no, I can right. If you if you if you look at these things that um, have been said over the last month or so, there were a lot of statements in the press about the possibility that Obama would lose the popular vote, and that was a pretty common item in punditry. Yet, I never thought that based on the state polls. And in the closing weeks, I used the state polls, which are a pretty good predictor if you use them right, and the national polls, which are an okay predictor, and I put those together to come up with a pretty sharp number. Uh, a pretty sharply focused number for what would happen. And I said that I thought that um, that Obama would win the popular vote nationally by a margin of 2.2%. Of and I've lost track of where it's at now. I think it's right now about 2.3%. Yeah, well, you could still more balanced accounts. You're still watching the account. Yeah, but the, the, the point is that a single national poll really didn't get that. I remember looking at a, a USA Today. I was on a trip, trip and, and USA Today is always what you see in the lobby when you're on a trip. 
uh, of a hotel. Or, or shoved under your door, yeah. yeah exactly, yeah. Yes, yeah, thank you. Uh, the nation's newspaper. And uh, anyway, so I, I saw USA Today. And well, Bill, James, Bill James said it's a sports paper with, you know, news on the front. Right, right. Um, in any but, case, you saw, you, you saw a splash saying it's even. No, it was actually said that, that Romney was ahead. And I, I don't remember how many points. It was something like by five points. And I looked at that and I thought, that is really not accurate because not only is it a national poll, which, you know, is a problem, but also it's a single poll. And I think media organizations really like to report their own polls and report single polls because that's what they pay for, right? You've got your in-house shop and you say, okay, we need a story about who's ahead, so let's commission a poll, make the phone calls, and let's report our own results. And they often don't watch one another. And the thing that aggregation really buys is it's a luxury because hobbyists like me and professionals like Nate Silver uh, take all this information that's floating around and freely available and we can crunch the numbers and we're not bound by using our own pollster because often we don't have one. Well, you're not also trapped in the kind of, I mean, you know, you're not delivering a product to a client. And that's right. I've been really interested in following the news that's been coming out of the Romney campaign because they relied on their own pollster, who's a, a man who named Neil Newhouse, who is evidently of pretty good reputation in his in his circles. Uh, and they were really convinced that turnout or the, how many whites and how many non-whites would turn out, whatever it was they were working on, whatever assumptions they were working on, they were pretty convinced that things would break their way and they ignored the wisdom of the crowd because they thought, we know what we're doing and this is what we see. And they really learned, well, I don't know if they learned it, but they certainly got a strong lesson uh, about the value of looking at, I think, groups of experts. Well, I think rather I would argue that what your pollster should be doing mm -hmm. inside an internal campaign is what your scout team should be doing, looking for your own tendencies on a football team. Um, that they should be, they should not be delivering happy news. They should be delivering. This is where we have trouble. Oh and yes, I think that's. Right. A, I think that's a huge criticism of the of the Romney campaign. And I think that what we're seeing in the post hoc analysis is we're seeing that Romney had a campaign that was delivering good news to the CEO, rather than a campaign that was delivering bad news to the general manager. I think that's a very good point. I'll put it like this. Let's make an analogy to weather prediction. Um, you would never accuse uh, a weather forecaster of being in favor of hurricane damage. Oh, I, I did, actually. <laughs> okay, I well, watching it. I was like, I see. They look, they're so happy. Uh -huh. I was watching the guy on, on my local TV station. Uh -huh. He was so happy. Oh, by the way, you're in Princeton. And I talked to like three people in Princeton, and they were all out of power. You're good, though? Oh yeah, we we live on the main street in uh, in the middle of town, and so actually we. You're we like on Mer are you on Mercer? I mean, you're uh, Nassau, Nassau. Okay, you're not in, you're not in Einstein's house. No, but, uh, no, no, no. That would be, uh, I'm I'm sure they kept power too because this is buried power line. There are buried power lines that go all the way down. Even Krugman was down, you know. So. Oh, was he? Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, uh, our our kids' um, daycare was. Uh, our kids' school was closed, and we ended up opening an impromptu cafe slash daycare center at our house so that people could get a little work done. You communist. Yeah, a, a true commune. Um, so, but, I'm sorry, we were talking about, about hurricanes. Well, my point is that, uh, that you want the weather forecaster to tell you where the hurricane is going to hit. And even if hurricanes are not popular, you still want a forecaster who's going to tell you what it's, where it's at. And it's important to have forecasting and other kinds of technical skills like that, 
I think, done as honestly as possible because what you need is preparedness. I mean, think about a hurricanes a hundred years right. ago. Right? We didn't, you know, we didn't know who, what was coming. But now a forecaster can tell you in three days you better have some batteries and water. Well, actually, the cone of the hurricane, the projection they were doing for Sandy, looked a whole lot like your uh, your projection for the you know the uh, presidential campaign with you know with the little red bar and then the yellow bar and oh yeah. When I de- when I design my diagrams, I very much have weather forecasting in mind, and I think about strike zones. And so all campaign, I had a red strike zone where I thought the electoral outcome would be, and a yellow strike zone saying, well, conservatively. Uh, in a small, you know, non-political sense, conservatively, this is the range of where it might end up. And I was very much thinking about weather maps uh, when designing those charts. Well, it's, it's funny because when I was studying statistics a long time ago, I, I didn't know until then that it was about truth. And well, as opposed to, as opposed to numbers, yeah, and about not fooling yourself. I think that's right. So it. It involves numbers, and at its heart are numbers, but in statistics, what, very broadly speaking, the kinds of things one's trying to do are things like uh, rule out things that are probably not true, uh, find out whether there's something unusual that needs more attention, uh, form a hypothesis, and then either say that the hypothesis lives or the hypothesis is knocked down and it's time to think about it some more. And so very much statistics is a whole discipline of trying to take confusing information and distill something out of it that's true. Right. And that data reduction idea is an important one. But also an important one is, you know, with the numbers you got, if, if that red line had slipped below, and you and, and you're, it's pretty clear that you had a rooting interest in this race. Uh, it would be really very hard to maintain a strong interest in this kind of activity if one did not have a rooting interest in who won. I certainly agree with that. But and that, would, that is true of other hobbyists as well. Right, but you wouldn't have moved the number. No, no. The thing is set up automatically. Like the data feed comes in, and it goes through my script that turns it all into a single electoral vote estimator. And I just sit there and I watch it. I mean, like all the readers of my site, I would fire <laughs> up my computer in the morning, and I'd look and I'd say, "Well, computer, what did you, you know, what, what do you have for me this morning?" Yeah, I, I checked it just like my readers. I would check it and say, "You know, it looks like it's, you know, it looks like that first debate wasn't so good for the president." And, yeah, uh, you had a hilarious entry where when somebody asked you, I can't remember now how they asked you, and you said, well, data comes in, it hits Python, it hits MATLAB, and then it's up to you or vice versa. Right, I mean, it's basically data, arrow, to MATLAB, arrow, Python, arrow, your screen. And, and, I, am not, I, and I am not in that chain. I mean, I was, I, you know, my... No, the whole point is not being that chain. That's right, and I think it's really important to do it that way. And there will be a time when... When the, I, well, let's think about during this campaign. The two big swings in the campaign that were really, uh, I would say, events that added a lot of drama were the first debate where Romney closed briefly and temporarily the gap between him and Obama. And the other time was when he named Paul Ryan to the ticket to be his running mate. And again, there was, there was a closing of the gap. And I can tell you that my readers who tilt Democratic uh, were putting up pretty panicked comments on the site saying, what's going on here? What's going on there? Sam, what, how long is that going to go on for? And I'd say, well, typically it takes 10 days for this kind of thing to shake out using state data. So why don't you just hang on and, and let's just see where it ends up. And, and I got this little fee- And then it was at that moment that I started getting asked questions about, why are you including that data point? What's going on there? And it just got into this very bargaining Fascinating. Kind so of situation. They, want, they wanted you to rig it. They wanted me to like go bump the pinball machine and like go get it to do something, and my, my response was, I'm not going to do that, guys. That is not the point here. 
And it's you know I'm not here to deliver you good news. I'm here here to deliver you clear news. And unlike a news organization, I didn't need to gain eyeballs every day. All I needed was to have a product that I thought was good. And I was actually very gratified to see that people wanted the product. Now, I said earlier, and I don't remember if I said it on the air or not, so I just want to repeat, your commenters are fabulous. They're great commenters. I I have to say I'm very impressed with how they've come together. One of the things that I love about your site is the fact that you're interacting with them. One of the reasons you have such great commenters is you're in there in the comment threads. And, folks, you really, if you're interested in this stuff, you really should go there because, you know, Sam's there. And if you have a dumb question, you can ask a dumb question and Sam will answer. Well, now that you've gotten, now, now that you've made that promise, I really have to be down there. But it is true that during the heat of the campaign, I would go down there and people would suggest things. And, you know, some of them I didn't really agree with and some of them I thought were a little silly. But sometimes I would really learn something. Often, actually, I would really learn something. And I would, and uh, I'll be honest, it was quite a job to maintain the content the essays that I was writing. No, and, it's, it's an enormous amount of work. Yeah, and, and they would come to me and say, what do you make of John Dickerson at Slate and what he's saying? And I'd go look at the link and I'd say, well, my goodness, that certainly doesn't sound like what's happening right now. And uh, and so then I would, I hope, gently take Mr. Dickerson to task for, uh, for saying things that were, didn't quite match. That's uh, actually a great segue because this exploded into a media thing. Uh-huh, yes. The fact, the fact that and I really, really, really don't want to use the terms nerd or geek or anything else <laughs> because I, I think it's a way that the traditional media uses to denigrate this kind of work, that they're trying to say it's something that's not worthwhile. And so right. I don't like – and I know that, that we that nerds and geeks embrace that label because they're trying to say we're concerned about the truth right. and we're not concerned about um, other stuff. Yeah, it's a way, I, in my opinion at least, of trivializing what you're doing as something. And what you're doing is you're really calling out um, an entire from lifetime, in my experience, of who the experts are. Yeah, my take on this is that I may not know how to pick up the phone and get the former Secretary of State on the phone or a ward boss in, in some city. I, I don't have any access to that. Uh, but like the other quantitative types, let's call us, let's call ourselves quants or money ball types, um, we have access to the data. And even though I can't go on Fox News and talk with Megyn Kelly about the race, what I do have is ability to go through the data and try to distill it. And I, one thing I think about the pundit class is that lots of them have grown up in a very old school manner where they rely on experience. They rely on their gut feeling and they rely on all these uh, imponderables that they accumulate over decades of being in the business. I think that's generous. Don't you think they rely on what they think of as access? Well, it's, so there. So another way to put it is that they rely on access, and they and perhaps they may even have their own agenda. So uh, there is a certain a whole certainly a whole subcategory of pundits this year who were going on about Mitt Romney's momentum, or they were going on about how Romney was really ahead, or they were really going on about how turnout was not going to favor the Democrats, and they were very, to my eye, in ear really actively misreading evidence in a close race where we knew who the front runner was, yet it was close, and they would just, you know, whack the pinball machine a few times. I, I, I want to go again and just say that a close race at 51-49 with a 95% certainty of maintaining a gap of 51-49 is both a close race but not an, one with an uncertain result. 
Yes, so so, so another uh, that's and right. that's I think what people when when they saw you with ninety nine percent up there and fifty one forty nine they like that didn't compute to a lot of people who aren't used to thinking about um, how this works. Well, I think one way that it offends intuition is that because individual polls often have a large margin of error, it is not in people's everyday experience to realize that that may be true of one poll, but if you have a hundred polls then the accuracy is much greater because you've now taken a look at the thing a hundred times. Well, you've also, you know, people have different biases. They have different ways of estimating likely voters. They have different ways of figuring out what turnout's going to be. They have different ways of calculating. They make different decisions about how to put together their sample, and they make different decisions about how to fix their sample. When it turns out they only have two black people and 300 white people, and they need a different different proportion. Yeah, I'll put this into perspective. now that we can look back on the campaign, knowing that these forms of aggregation that, that I do to give a snapshot that moves up and down, so my snapshot is purely poll-based, and so I, have, with some confidence, can tell you where the race was at, on any day of the campaign. And there was not a single day of the campaign when Romney was leading. Barack Obama was ahead every day of the campaign. And that is something that is not obvious when you consume news reports of individual polls. That's a brilliant way to put it, that that, you know, when you say there's a 99% chance that Obama's ahead, even though he's up by 51.49 or 50.5495 or 52.48, he's still always up. That's right. And so it's 99% of the time he's ahead. You should be pretty confident that at the end of the race, he'll be ahead. Yeah, I was, uh, as I said, pretty sure. But, uh, you know, it's hard to persuade people of that. And I have to say, I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that there's so much attention now because I think the interesting part of this race was following it along the way and seeing what happened after the Democratic Convention or the Republican Convention. To me, that was the exciting part. And now it's it's really interesting because now that we know what the result is, everything that came before looks a little bit different now that we know that the analysis is correct. Well, the punditry were right, though, that the debate changed, the first debate changed things. Yes, although oddly enough, one thing that was interesting there was that punditry, un, some pundits, underestimated the effect because, in fact, the effect was seismic. It was huge. Uh, well, I, it really, really sucked. Well, and, 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 yeah. and if, and, you know, it wasn't so much that Romney was good as Obama just really was bad. Whatever the reasons were, he was not an active player in that debate. And, uh, and he said things that I thought were factually true, but they just were not the kind of thing that got people's blood moving. Oh, they came out flat. Yeah, and I think that I, I think that that really showed. It's, one thing that's interesting is that it's not necessarily the case that people's minds were changed, because remember, polls measure uh, likelihood of voting. They they try to identify likely voters, and so that swing that we've been talking about could be explained by likely voters just being five percent more likely or five percent less likely to vote, and right. that would be enough to account for the likely. That's vote. fascinating. So you're saying what could have happened was that people who were you know, iffy, iffy on just bothering to vote, said, oh, this guy, you know, I'm still disappointed. Now I'm, so they didn't want to turn out. Well, you can certainly imagine a pollster calling someone and saying, uh, calling a Romney supporter and saying, would you like to speak with me about your preferences? And under normal circumstances, they say, yeah, I don't want to talk with you. But under those circumstances, why, yes, I'd love to talk with you about what I just saw. And an Obama supporter, just the opposite. Yeah, and it, it, it wouldn't take that much swing. Because one thing that's pretty apparent this year is that the race didn't swing that much. And there's been a lot of talk about the voting public being highly polarized. 
And I, hate, I hate that phrase. Cause, well, but uh, to, to turn it into a quantitative statement, the number of people who might actually switch their preference could be a very small fraction of voters. So um, that, that would be another way. Highly polarized is that people who actually do vote are very unlikely to change their vote. Yeah, I think that is probably true. And if, and if you think about that, I mean, I, my feeling is that that's not very healthy for our politics to have uh, enough opposition between parties where it's just unthinkable to vote for the other guy. I, I find that very interesting just on the grounds that that was not true 30, 40 years ago. Well, to have, to have not enough overlap of policy positions between the two parties. Right. Or at least perception of public policy. But right. it's also, this is, you know, the media is just consumed with identity politics, but it's not unimportant. Yeah, there's I mean, there's different ways to slice it. There's been there seems to be a lot of uh, talk lately about Latino voters, but there's young voters. There's what the hell voters. are you know? I, I live in New York, so maybe it's just me. But what the hell are Latino voters? I mean, you know, my, my, I got I got a nephew who graduated from Princeton yeah. a couple of years ago who's who identifies Latino. His mom was from Puerto Rico. His dad's from Maine. His grandfather uh-huh. is from Massachusetts. His, you know, I mean, what, what is Latino? I, it really freaks me out that this has turned into some kind of identity because, you know, frankly, it won't be one in 20 years. So you're saying what, like, well, for one thing, so for one thing, within that broad category. The, 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 the Republicans are managing to lose that category. That in fact, I, I, I was reading that, they're, that they did poorly with Cuban-Americans in, uh, in Florida this time around. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's I, interesting, huh? Yeah, because, of course, yeah. that was their most – I mean, the whole reason we have the stupid embargo was because of Cuban-Americans in Florida. Yeah, but I think you're – it seems like you're also talking about the fact that uh, immigrant groups tend to assimilate. Like, we would never – Exactly, that's what I said I was saying. Yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't talk these days about trying to win the Irish-American vote. Well, somebody, the, was, somebody commenting on O'Reilly's street said, you know, he, he was a black guy. You know, back uh-huh. back back in you know in, in right, 1900, right. you know he he was someone who was not wasp. He was uh, not considered a minority group. My take is that the bigger problem I would think for the Republican Party is that uh, it has been noticed that people form their per- political preferences early in life in young adulthood yes. and often stick with them. And right now there's a wave of uh, young people, say below the age of 30, right. and people who are turning 18 just getting to vote, who are tilting strongly Democratic. And I think that's a wave that really perhaps more importantly than this Latino thing, people can switch how they identify themselves ethnically as they assimilate. But if you're 18, you know what? Next year you're going to be 19. And the year after that you're going to be 20. And there's a whole wave of people going through who are identifying with one party. And I think that's a really significant challenge to any party that's on the outside of that. Well, what the Republicans were reaping for the last, like, you know, 10 years was the young Reagan people. people. And so... You know, it's just insane for a party to think they're going to be able to have a message of anti-diversity and, and, and bring in young people. I mean, young people are exposed constantly to diversity. Yeah, a lot of the hot-button issues seem to have flipped to the other uh, side in terms of their ability to win votes, things like uh, same-sex marriage, right? Well, yeah, same-sex marriage, uh, just regular people. I mean, in, intermarriage between races. I mean, stuff that makes you know, over 55 white male Southern voters freak are things right. that are absolutely routine to people in their 20s. That's correct. Right, right. And I don't know how they can fix that. 
And they tried to fix it when Roe and Bush tried to put through immigration policy to at least capture their natural allies among conservative Catholics, because there were plenty of conservative Latino Catholics. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure, though, that the Republican Party is rethinking very much of anything. I, I'm, no, getting, no. I'm getting a vibe that they're happy with who they are. Well, or the death spiral continues even worse. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very interesting watching Fox News on, um, on election night because it just had the aura of um, they were all genuinely convinced that the numbers were in their favor because they had put a finger on the scale and had decided that, that the great body of pollsters was wrong. I, I, I can tell you that poll analysts and poll commentators uh, on that part of the political spectrum were, were all abuzz with turnout models and how these, I don't know, I guess they thought that pollsters were in the tank for Obama, which I find amazing to just think about. And that's like weathermen in the tank for hurricanes. But um, but they really genuinely seemed to think that there was something systematically wrong with all the data. And it was really interesting to watch somebody like Karl Rove, who has decades of experience and hundreds of millions of dollars at his command, uh, sitting there and having a little decompensation moment. Well, I happen to think he was just continuing the grift. I happen to think that, but we'll, we'll let that go. Um, uh, see, I thought he really believed it. Interesting, because, you see, well, I've got two other theories about that, but I'm only going to talk about one, because uh-huh. there's one about fraud and they expected they could... Oh, so you thought it was a setup to set the stage for I, some battle that came later. I, I thought that he might have been trying to justify what he thought was going to be vote flips. But uh, no, I, I actually am of the opinion that it was a commonly held, genuine belief. So, for instance, here's an example. Um, oh, see, in a pre-election, yeah. Oh, come on, I'm sorry. Uh, in a pre-election interview, Romney said that he had he had a victory speech written, but not a concession speech. And I am very impressed that in such a race where the numbers were against him, he did not have that contingency plan. Impressed in what way? Uh, impressed with the likely fact that he genuinely thought that he was ahead and going to win. I was very interested in that because these campaigns on both sides have the best experts that they can obtain with their funds. And well, close experts were probably telling him that he could do it. Yeah, the thing is, is what, did he hire people who tell him the truth? Did he hire people and tell him what he wanted to hear? Well, that's a good point. But the thing is, is one one confounding thing, and, and I think this is something you might want to worry about in terms of the efficacy of, of the use of group pollings, is that it looks like Obama changed the ground game. I don't know if you saw Michael Shearer's piece about their micro-targeting of oh, advertising. I- this has been coming out a fair bit in the news. Um, yeah, there, there have been other pieces. Michael Shearer had one in time that was the best one I've seen. But Sasha Eisenberg had a piece. Yeah, there have been others. But, you know, what they were doing is they were really targeting, honestly, you know, running ads on cable TV shows in Ohio directed at under 35-year-old women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were picking, I can't, Living Dead or something like that, The Walking Dead. I can't remember the name of the shows, but they were picking shows that had that demo. And it was cheap. Yeah, it's cheap to buy those ads. Right. So what they're, what they're identifying is uh, efficient resource allocation. And that they were extremely efficient, not only in that, but also reading experiences of people doing, doing go, Get Out the Vote, that they had really, really precisely worked out Get Out the Vote plans. And it could be that, that what we saw was the likely voter models were wrong. 
um, in the sense that they underestimated Republican turnout. Oh. I'm sorry, underestimated Democratic turnout and overestimated Republican turnout. So one place we can look for that kind of information would be exit polls. So I think that exactly. Yeah, I, I think that crosstabs and exit polls are a place to look for those kinds of breakdown. And, and despite the fact that aggregators like me or Nate Silver or Drew Linzer or or Mark Blumenthal uh, are taking this information and putting it together to come up with a sharper estimate, there's still a lot of value in those polls in uh, in identifying patterns like this. And of course, but part of your point about the pollsters being professionals is they examine those exit polls and change their likely voter models. Uh, yes, I think that they spend a lot of time watching each other, watching uh, the exits. Uh, there are things that they do to improve their craft. I think that, broadly speaking, I think they do quite well as a group, uh, but they, well, they do watch each other. Obviously. I mean, you know, you, you're, you and Nate and other folks are using that information, and yeah, it worked extremely well. So I, I would love to be a fly on the wall in the uh, post-game discussion at Gallup uh, because they uh, very clearly <laughs> had some numbers that were at variance with the rest of the field. And they've been around longer, and so they have a lot of very well-established methods. But I can't help thinking that maybe it might be time to to give a pretty strong look at those methods. Sorry, folks. The, the two the two polling firms that did the worst this time around was Gallup and Rasmussen. And Rasmussen, right. of course, is widely known as a Republican-leaning firm. But Gallup is, you know, used to be, when I was a kid, Gallup and Roper, you know. They, they were the – George Gallup invented the idea of polling in many ways. Yeah, so there are these ways of polling that come through. So, for instance, Roper, if I recall, uh, made his bones – going up against the preeminent polling authority at the time, which I think was the Literary Digest survey, <laughs> and uh, and said, well, I've got this better method, and the better method gets the result more accurately. And so it is often the case that there's this shock to that industry where the new upstart, whether it be YouGov with their internet polling or PPP or, or whatever, thing, you know, people who do, say, cell phone sampling, that they come along and get a better result than the old guard, and then there's a shakeup. And I think that it's quite possible that we saw a little bit of that this year. Well, it could be. Um, but I want to go back before we run out of time, because I, I know you want to get home. Um, <laughs> um, is that has this changed? I mean, this has been a complete. This has been extraordinarily embarrassing for the people who are driven by their savvy access to insider people who tell them what the real deal is on their inside polls. Um, the people who used quote their gut the people who used, quote, their sources were wrong over and over again. And the people who used publicly available information, um, you know, not not done stupidly, but actually not done, you know, I, I, forgive me, but not done that, that, that sophisticatedly outperformed them. I would say that some of the things that I do are complicated that, require a little bit of math to help identify ups and downs. But the fundamental calculation is is available to any hobbyist. And I can tell you that in 2004, uh, four years before uh, Nate Silver came on the scene, there were dozens of hobbyists online doing these things. And it was fascinating to see the whole activity spring up because I, uh, uh, I, I had among the most popular sites in that year, yet there were a lot of people who were doing this. And it's it's within the reach of of people who are not Carl Rove. You can be sitting in your bathrobe in, in in Kansas City and you could be doing it. And it's really 
it's really something that's within reach of an intelligent person who's willing to sit down and and, uh, and get out a pencil and a spreadsheet. Yeah, and the point is, is that the information is publicly available. The pollsters make it publicly available, and what and the idea that it's public is, just, I, I think, fundamentally at variance with the idea that you should be sitting on the television. I'm sitting on a studio in a television set talking about what you think is going to happen when somebody in their bathrobe with their Cheetos in their mother's basement <laughs> push a button and say, well, no, you're wrong. Well, I should say that I take a more positive, or maybe I, I think I you take a more positive view of... No Cheetos for you? I don't eat Cheetos, but I take a more positive view of these experienced uh, gut reaction pundits because I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff they have to say. I just think that it would be very helpful for what they say to be grounded in something more objective rather than what they would like to be true. And I think that would improve, it would certainly reduce the anxiety, uh, it would reduce the funereal air at Fox News on election night. Well, but, you know, what, what would it look like? I mean, what would they what would they do sitting around David Gregory's table? What would they talk about if they said, well, it's pretty clear? Uh, I don't know. I, all the talk that's happening now about Latinos, they could do that before the election. I, I don't really know. I, it's a good point. There's some quite, So... Here's one possibility: policies. Oh, I, well, heavens no! Well, they do talk about that. Talk about the need to get social security and and entitlements and so forth. Right, but my 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 point is that it's possible to talk about things like what are the priorities for the budget on either side. Yes. What, what, what do you mean? It looks like Obama's going to win. It's pretty clear Obama's going to win. What does it mean? Would be something they could do. Or it would be something like uh, Ryan was a real shot in the arm for the Republican ticket and the ticket has now fought its way to a near tie, let's take a look at what the Ryan budget contains and not spend a whole lot of time on, on breathlessly reporting out single polls. Let's drill into what it is that these sides, uh, that these two campaigns really wanted. I, that's a somewhat idealistic goo-goo vision, but my, idea, my suggestion is that maybe there would open up a little bit of oxygen in the room for having a real substantive discussion. That would have been hard to do this year because it was never closed. I'm sorry. It was never in doubt. It was always close, but it was never in doubt. And yeah. I, I want to carry again that idea that 5149 with a 95% chance of 5149 is different from, you know, going back and forth between 50.5 and 49.5. I, I will say that the week after the first debate had to have been, uh, for a lot of people, I think it was for a lot of people, really quite shocking in the sense that I don't think it, it didn't seem like it could have gotten that close, and yet it did. Well, it's funny because, you know, one of the bits of e economics that I've never forgotten is the Lucas critique, mm -hmm. which was a criticism of the macro models that were used in the 70s, mm -hmm. saying that they didn't, rec they didn't recognize the fact that the agents inside the models were aware of the models. Do you worry about that? that but aggregation affecting well, people's they, opinion? Yeah, yeah. You, you run the model. You show it's close. Do you, do you worry that it, you're you're influencing the decision making? If I think did, I think that this kind of information is most likely to influence journalists and the pundit class, and I think that's right. quite likely because those are professionals whose job it is to to ostensibly explain and cover these events. I don't think that regular citizens are like that. I think that if you're living in some place where you have your day-to-day -day life and you're worried about you know, your job or your family or, or whatever it might be, those are not junkies who spend their time reading Nate Silver's blog and saying, holy smokes, the probability of my guy winning in my state is 3%. I think I'm just going to go soak my head. I don't think that they read David Brooks reporting on that, but David Brooks is an operative. Or 
Well, so so it is true that polls tend to underreport the leading candidate's margin, and it could be that the side that's losing uh, in, say, Utah or Vermont might stay home a little bit more. But I just don't think that aggregation is so powerful that it can reach inside people's heads and change turnout. I, I just that doesn't seem true to me. Well, I wouldn't argue reach inside their heads. Actually, <laughs> that was a straw man, sir. <laughs> um, but but I, I I would say that if in fact you know that that but it didn't work. I mean, you know, the, your polls did show. I mean, you and all the other aggregators show that in response to the first round, the first debate, there was this big shift. Yes, but it happened so quickly that it happened too quickly for the pundits to be a real agent there. It happened in one night. And so the most likely mechanism there was that it was the sight of the two cam- candidates going at each other or actually the sight of one candidate going at the other. That <laughs> uh, that sight apparently was um, was a pretty powerful one for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think it may well have been, you know, people didn't expect that the, uh, the, there was a low bar for Romney and there was a high bar for Obama. Yeah, so that may have been what happened, but that's all speculation because all we know is what the polls say, right? Yes. Well, uh, there is one interesting survey, the Rand survey, that tracked people over and over during the, the course of the campaign, and you could watch people's minds change because they would recontact the same people over and over again. And I, I actually rather enjoyed watching that one. People's minds changed because we said earlier that people were kind of locked in. Well, people in the Rand sample seem to change their mind. Uh, it would be interesting to, go, to do a look back and figure out whether one could align what happened in the Rand sample with, uh, with these other polls. The problem with these polls is that it's, they're ambiguous in the sense that one possibility is that a few people might change their minds. Another possibility is that likely voters could change their amount of likeliness. And those two things get entangled, and it's, and it's not all that easy to tell the difference. I will tell you that the number of... Un- <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounds kind of quantum, kind of quantum likelihood entanglement. Yeah, well, uh, but one thing that was pretty clear was that the number of undecided voters stayed kind of the same for most of the campaign and just came down really gradually week by week. So none of these swings were undecided voters getting off the fence. And so I think the undecided idea is actually a bit of a mess. I think there are voters who are not entirely aware of what their own biases are, but I would not call them undecided. It's just that they are not able to report what they uh, are likely to do. Oh boy! And now we're talking about neuroscience. Uh, well, that's me. When 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 you move your arm, but you move your arm before, you know, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm one of the interesting results, folks, of what people have been studying neuroscience is that your acknowledge the neuron firing of when you move your arm happens after you move it. Right. Right. You're, right. You're, you're you're you acknowledge something that your body's already done, but you think you did it. Yeah, there are steps in our brains that happen before that really drive the process, and there are other steps that involve becoming aware of what we're thinking about or what we've committed to. And some of those steps come afterward. And I think that... Uh, in ways that are surprising. Yeah, and, and commitment to a decision is not the same as knowing that you've made a decision. And uh, and so when a pollster well, so calls no, somebody... No, say, say that again, because that was really, really... <laughs> no, no, that's a really astute thing you just said. So commitment, to, commitment to a decision is not the same as knowing that you've made a decision. And so, for instance, if a pollster calls you and says, who do you support? And you say, well, I don't know, I'm sort of undecided. But there is research that shows that if you probe further and ask other questions that are predictive of a person's attitudes, you can ferret out with some accuracy what they're eventually going to vote on. I mean, a gross example of that is the Bradley effect. Uh, that is an example, although the Bradley effect has diminished uh, quite a bit in recent years. Uh, that's, uh, that particular effect seems to have gone away. Right, but the point is, is that nobody would admit to themselves that they were going to vote this way until That's they right. closed, closed the curtain and said, "Oh, 
Okay, I'm voting this way. Right, right, right. The Bradley effect, of course, is that there are white voters who would not vote for a black candidate, and they don't admit that to pollsters, but they vote differently once they get inside the ballot. Yeah, there used to be a little Bradley effect. It seems to have faded over the last 10, 20 years. There's this guy at Johns Hopkins. I think his name is Dave Hopkins, and I think he's at Johns Hopkins. But anyway, but he uh, uh, he figured that out. He looked at a lot of data and crunched the numbers and, and figured out that whatever that effect was, it seems to have faded away. Right. Um, well, so the last thing I guess I want to ask you is what do you think it will look like um, at, I don't know, CNN's roundtable? Because one, one more thing that can complicate things, and that is that, you know, they gather up people who have – who are operatives for each campaign, and that's the content of the program, of is operatives exchanging talking points, bracketed right. by advertisements of, of talking points. I, how, what, how does their business model work if um, people just say, "Hey, you're being silly"? We know what the numbers are. That that is interesting. I was uh, I have very little experience with this, but I did do a, a talk show uh, on the radio with Mark McKinnon, who was oh really. Yeah, who was the media advisor to the Bush 2000 campaign. And he started going off about Sandy, about how it blooded Romney's momentum, and he started talking about Romney's post-debate momentum. And and I was asked something else, but I couldn't help myself, and I left it, and I said, look, empirically, those are, not, those are two, two statements that are false. First off, Romney's Uh-oh. momentum... Momentum peaked in the first week, and it's been moving back to Obama since then. Secondly, that's happened before Sandy, and so it cannot be the case that it's caused by Sandy. And uh, and there wasn't any pushback. I was actually quite surprised. I was waiting to get pushed back on. But what did McKinnon say? He well, he's very he's a very polite man, and I and I don't really know what he said except he, he didn't really push back very hard. I think he was just a little bit shocked that somebody he had never heard of was uh, was getting in his face with numbers. And uh, and it was interesting to to feel the back and forth that I was not talking about momentum or crowds or whatever it might be. I was just saying I don't know the numbers say this, and and I got, I sensed a little tiny bit of surprise that uh, that somebody he had never heard of would be doing that to him. Yeah, I would say something. Well, no, no. I think that the thing that's different is that what people using polls have done, in my experience, actually, in political campaigns, is they've used the poll numbers to justify positions that they have already. That, I think that's right, yes. that's. Uh, and right. for you to simply say, oh, that's actually false. I mean, it's demonstrably not true that this is the case. It reminds me, I don't know if you've read Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. I have not, but I, I've certainly heard of it. Well, there's there's a scene in there where a technology guy just turns to someone and says, "You just made three statements that are monstrously false." And, <laughs> well, and it, it's funny. It's a funny scene. But the point is, is that they're not used to that. They're used to this. Not the idea that something is demonstrably false isn't in their penumbra of understanding. That all of these things are undetermined until the coalescence of the election. And so they can say anything they want. Right. I think uh, Peggy Noonan said the day before the election, nobody knows anything. That was her phrasing in some blog post at the Wall Street Journal. And I, I, I looked at that and my, my head just felt like it might possibly explode because my thought was... <laughs> at least your teeth hurt. Right. It's just my thought was, what do you mean nobody knows anything? What, what, are, what are we doing over here? I, should I, I, just... I, I know a great deal, actually, in point of fact, Ms. Noonan. Well, it was interesting. So, I mean, at some level, it's understandable in the sense that if you're on the side that's behind, 
you it, it is more natural to say things like the only poll that matters is the one on election day, which is not false. Well, which is uh, which is demonstrably true as well. It's just a, yeah. A so I, event. right. So what? I'm, right. But the point is that it, what I'm getting at is that it's natural to to fall back on things like that if the numbers don't support you then you fall back on principle and the reason that you're there in the first place, as opposed to saying, look, we're ahead. You say, um, who really knows anything? I mean, it's, it's like that Monty Python scene. Let's, let's, not, uh, let's not get wrapped up in little minute things like who killed who. <laughs> well, but, but then you get Dick Morris saying we're going to win, no question. Uh, yes, yes. He got, he's gotten kind of quiet lately. I, I, somebody better check on him. <laughs> Well, it's it's been wonderful you can join us, Sam. And I'd love to come back to talk about the the neuroscience books. No, that would be fun. I'd enjoy that a lot. We'll figure that out. Um, folks, this is Sam Wong. Again, you can see him at the Princeton Election Consortium. That's, um, so remind me of the URL. Uh, yes, it's election.princeton.edu. And, and again, folks, don't just read the blog posts. Read the comments. He, they're fantastic commenters at the site. It's, it, they're up to the quality of empty wheels commenters. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a really and, and again, I think Sam, it's because you're in you're you're in those comments and you're communicating with people and you're actually reflecting what they say and that's one reason it's such a great blog site. Um, and so and also the books. Um, I forgot the books. Oh uh, yes, welcome to your brain and welcome, welcome to, your, to your child's brain. And get those as well. Okay. I'll get them this week. Thank you, sir. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Good night.